Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. It starts off with this very high-tech synthosequency type thing, like this. That's the news. To me, that's what this—that's the sound of the pitch meeting for every single uh, theme song ever in the history of broadcasting. That's from Broadcast News. We're going to get to that in two seconds uh, because Morning Edition has a brand new theme song. We'll tell you all about that. Uh, just quickly before we get going on that, I wanted to quickly bring you up to date on a few other things you uh, may or may not know. First of all, the gist with our friend Mike Pesca is turning five years old today. Five years old, and so and he's been a great friend to our show and often a guest here. So uh, happy birthday. I tried to look up something better than the gist that happened five years ago today, and I discovered that Coke and Pepsi, this, that's a real Pesca kind of thing to do, to look something like that up, you know? So Coke and Pepsi got rid of something called brominated vegetable oil, which was... <laughs> which was a flame retardant, which for some reason or other was in their soda, which if you drank too much of it could give you memory loss and fatigue and ptosis of the eyelid, which I personally hate getting. So uh, anyway, happy happy birthday. You're better than getting rid of brominated vegetable oil, BVO, from soda. You're better than even that. Uh, I also want to say that as a Red Sox fan, I'm very ha- happy that Alex Cora, the manager of the Red Sox, has officially said that he won't attend the ceremonies celebrating the world championship uh, of the Red Sox at the White House. And now Country House, the uh, winner of the Derby, the controversial winner of the Derby, he's also saying that he will not go to the White House either. Um, I don't know that they necessarily always in- invite the horses. All right, so we're going to move on. It is time uh, to talk about the morning edition theme song. Uh, Adam Ragusea is going to help us out. Journalist in residence and visiting assistant professor of journalism at Mercer University's Center for Collaborative Journalism and an expert on all things, I can't say all things considered, all things public radio, uh, and has uh, written quite a bit about public radio and hosted a podcast about public radio. And Adam, you, because you can just see around corners, you knew this was coming. You were one of the few people not surprised this morning when Morning Edition had a different theme song. Tell us why. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to tell you entirely why, but it's safe to say that the trade publication that I have worked with sometimes that covers public broadcasting news current has known about this and been in possession of it for a while. And uh, I got to hear it a long time ago and developed some thoughts um, in addition to all of my uh, things on my glistening resume that you just um, uh, uh, read off where journalism occurs in my title three times, right. so you know I'm legit. And I didn't even um, mention I, food, all the food videos and stuff, too. We, oh, we, I know. I'm a YouTube star. Yeah. Adam Ragusea at YouTube. You got to go. Anyways, um, 
That's a new thing. Uh, no, but I, I, I'm a composer like by training. Like That's what I went to school for. And I still write music for shows um, as kind of a side hustle. So that's why Current asked me to write about the new Morning Edition theme um, that everyone is freaking out about right now. No doubt WNPR's uh, board has been lit up all morning with cranky people in Greenwich or whatever waking up to change because we <laughs> fear change. Um, but I think we should stipulate, like, right up front that uh, 20 years from now, then when they're going to be doing the Colin McEnroe show, at that point, I assume it will be the Kai and Wolf show. Right. And with a, uh, with a the ro- ASEG is going to be, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They changed the beloved 20-year-old classic morning edition theme with its throbbing club beats that remind me of my youth when we were all on Molly and America was innocent. So let's just stipulate that up front. All right. That, like, so what, what, is, what we need to do to set this up, I think, is now to play these two so that they can understand what it is of your speak. I personally am still using Molly, but that's a, a whole separate issue. Uh, so here's what you've been listening to since All right, you you remember it now. Now I hope you know retain that musical memory because you are either going to agree or disagree with Adam Ragusea on a very important point. Here is as of today the new theme. So you get the idea. Um, big finish. Big finish. Yeah. So, um, so Adam, your your argument here is that this is not so much a completely fresh composition because we can hear the notes, you know, kind of in the second or third movement in there. You can hear the very familiar notes uh, of the original melody. You really see this as simply a, a different kind of it's like a cover version yeah, of BJ Lederman. Variations, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, it's N- the NPR hype machine, which the New York Times and their article about this new theme just bought hook, line, and sinker, is pushing this as a new theme. I do not think that it is a new theme. If it's a new theme, then someone should be able to point me to the new theme in the freshman music theory sense of the word. That is to say, a complete musical idea, generally a melody that forms the basis of a composition or section, right? What is the thematic material in that that is not? B.J. Liederman's original like melody, right? It's Mm. all based on that. And indeed, the people who made it, I talked to 
um, this woman named, uh, what's her name, Emmy Crawford, who mm-hmm. was the uh, creative director, creative director, not composer, creative director, um, at the Sonic Studio man-made music that produced this new branding uh, uh, sound. Let's not call it music. Um, no, I, that's, that's too harsh. I'm sorry. It's, I think it's good. I think it's really, really yeah. good. I just. Yeah. I thought you were um, going to go positive here. I know. No, no, no. I just, it's just, to me, it's like, there's something of like, it's something of a microcosm of how f- far um, NPR has come in, in its like 50 years or 40 years, 50 years um, since, uh, you know, when the days when like they hired this um, American University kid. Um, B.J. Lederman to kind of like write something for basically no money in exchange for perpetual on-air credit that he will continue to get, by the way, I am told. Um, You know, we've come so far from those like disorganized days when NPR was just a bunch of hippie kids running a radio station to now we're like corporate hires a sonic branding firm that has four or five in-house creatives working on the new you know sounder package or whatever you know they call it i mean i i I don't know i mean it's it's, it's inevitable things grow up the people mature whatever people move on they grow up they change colin it's not you it's me all right so just to emphasize what adam was saying there there isn't a single composer there's sort of this diffusion uh, uh and perhaps even plausible deniability there for uh this company called man-made music which seems a little gender specific but man-made music uh has as as adam just said um four or five in-house creatives uh involved in this project so no one person like if you want to get mad at somebody well i hate that theme you wrote you can't get mad at one person because he can just say oh no she wrote it actually well that part that you don't like which is sort of weird i don't know you're the composer but i just like since when is that is it like that it's a thing. I mean, it's a thing. <laughs> it's a like, thing? I mean, okay. this is. I guess this is the company that made the, um, the like IMAX bass drop sound that everybody knows. Oh. Like when you go to the IMAX theater to watch the latest Marvel Abomination or whatever, and it goes, yeah, and your head explodes. Like they they did that. Yeah. There's f- firms that do this kind of thing. And again, like I I feel bad because I think that they did a really good job, and um, they did a very good job in trying to meet a whole bunch of competing objectives that are just it was an unsolvable puzzle to try to like create a new a new theme package for morning edition and by the way to just to kind of you know uh, square the circle on that that's not the expression i don't know what i don't know what the expression is but to come back to the thing um <laughs> yeah like crawford herself said that like they were con- they were co- what was commissioned of them was an evolution of the morning edition theme not a new theme which is how the new york times uncritically parroted this claim i mean it's not this is not the first time there's been a new arrangement i forgive me for correct correcting you colin okay. but the first bit of clip music that you played there was not the original morning edition music from 1979 that's the smooth jazz rearrangement the uh-huh. thing that i actually do really agree needed freshening it always to me sounded like like something like the uh, the, the musical distillation of like darian connecticut coffee shop right like hey now it's like it was like the the whitest thing on npr and that is really saying something um no the original version was this more kind of like baroque music sounding thing that that bj did 
Um, and so it's changed before. It's, right. it's changes perpetual. And yes, this is like a more distant, a more adventurous rearrangement of BJ's theme, but I still think it's fundamentally BJ's theme. And I don't think that people should be all that freaked out about it. I think it does a good job of kind of freshening it all up and making it sound au courant while not really offending anyone's sensibilities and not doing what I was afraid they were going to do, which was really pander to people's sensibilities and just like put, you know, I've, I'm, in, I'm in Georgia, south of Atlanta. I was afraid they were going to like come down to Atlanta and like steal a trap beat and put it on there or something just to really pander to some demo that they're going to go after. Like, I think it's inclusive. It, incl- it has sort of nods to various cultures, musics in it. Um, I think it's like, it's good, but like, yeah, it's, it's a classic thing of like, when you try to make something that, that is for everyone, it ends up being for no one. If you try to do something that's everything, it ends up being nothing. And that's, I don't think it's not their fault. Um, it's not, it's not the composer's faults. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they did the best they could with the assignment they got. Right. So if it ain't Baroque, don't fix it. Now somebody sitting hey. in a somebody sitting in a Darien coffee shop just went, Muffin, what's a trap beat? He just said trap <laughs> beat. See, you're confusing people now. I just want to say I'm gonna I'm gonna let Adam go in two minutes. He's gotta run somewhere, but I'm also gonna stay here for five more minutes on this topic if you guys wanna call in about this. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Come on, Darian coffee shop people, it's time to vent. You didn't like this change. Or maybe you do. Maybe you just want to kind of make building a dugout canoe maybe while you're listening to this super world music thing. Although I do agree, Adam, with one of the people in your piece, uh, Amory Syverston. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Amory Syverson. She hosts um, the podcast Endless Thread from WBUR and Reddit. So to your previous point, she said it sounds like they had some interesting production ideas and they took... All of them, and to me, this all piece, of them. this all piece, all the ideas, yeah, all of them. It's neither you get fish, an idea, yeah, and you get an right. idea. It's neither fish nor fowl. It's a little bit like I don't know if you've heard the the theme music to the Slate Culture Gab Fest, where sure they have. they yeah, they hired a composer and to try to incorporate all of the sensibilities of the of the three hosts, and that's exactly what the composer did, and it doesn't therefore sound particularly unified. Yeah, that poor guy. They documented that whole new yes. process like in an episode. Yes. And I felt so bad for that poor guy because he's a really good, yeah. I, I know his work, he's a really good composer. And they were just like, hey, can you make it like this and like this and a little bit like this and a little <laughs> bit like Gamelon and a little yeah. bit like, you know, Birdsong. And and then and he was just like, okay, I've got a word salad <laughs> I need to make into a tune. And he gave them exactly what they asked right, for, which is all you can do for your client, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm sure we're going to get used to this uh, and that we will be we'll be better people for having gone through this change. I know you've got to run, so I'm going to let you do that. Adam Ragusea, journalist in residence, visiting assistant professor of journalism at Mercer University's Center for Journalism, 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 and more journalism even, uh, and also, also a composer and does uh, food stuff on YouTube. So that covers pretty much everything, I think. So now you run. You go. I know you have to run home. So you go do that. We're going to let you go. And I'm just going to – I will – I've got five minutes that I can build into this conversation. We have two other topics that we're going to talk about as the day goes along, and we can go to them sooner rather than later. But I feel like this is the kind of thing where we might get calls. So 860-275-7266. Did you notice the new theme music today? Or maybe you just heard it just now. And if so, what did you think of it? 860 Two seven five seven two six six. This is all going to happen in the next five minutes, so don't, uh, you know, don't uh, waste time. Um, all right, here's Madeline in Stanford. Hi. Hi. So, 
Um, I just heard the theme, the new theme music, and I'm calling to say I don't think it's at all good. Okay. Um, I, I think it sounds a lot like something, um, you know, somebody playing with garage band would do. Mm-hmm. And um, it's um, more like new age music, but there's, there's no um, melodic theme that you could grab onto and internalize. Right. And that's what good music does. Right. Well, I mean, you can hear, as I said, the notes uh, of the main theme as it goes along there. But I agree that it, it seems like a layering of a, of a bunch of electronic music styles that are meant in many cases to copy world music styles on more basic analog kinds of instruments. And, and so, it, I mean, it, it does have that problem of trying to be everything. And if you try to be everything, as Adam was endeavoring to point out, you are nothing. I, yeah, I think if they had done something that a person would enjoy singing to, mm-hmm. that would be much better because that's what, you know, what it really comes down to, whether you can... But you didn't ever sing the old B.J. Lederman theme, did you? Oh, I could. I mean, I, I really, I mean, I couldn't sing it to you off the... But da, 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 da. Uh, yeah, I, I just, you know, like in the shower that. maybe or something, you would just kind of no, la-la? Yeah, the first two, you know, the first few seconds are kind of amorphous, but when it gets down to the core of that that, you know, you know which part I mean, the good part. Yes. It's wonderful. It's a really great, it's a really great melody. All right. Well, Kion Wolf is agreeing with you about the singing part, that you should be able to sing it. Uh, here's Jordan in Pawtucket. Hi, Jordan. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Fire away. Well, uh, so I didn't hear the theme this morning, but I just heard it on your show. Yeah. I think it's a nice idea, you know, for them to want to, like, freshen it up, and mm-hmm. they kept the old theme in there and everything. I, I just want to comment on how I think it's really funny that uh, that people out there would be so up in arms about such a, a seemingly minor change, you know, something innocent and, like, meant to just keep it fresh. Right. Although you sound young. I don't know how young you are. The older you get, the worse you are at adopting to anything, to anything. Something moves like three inches in one direction and it just ruins your day. So it could be something, I mean, and public radio listeners, although they are not exclusively gray-haired, long-in-the-tooth people, they're, you know, they skew a little bit that way. And they're and they're probably not going to dig the kind of EDM, you know, sound that's kind of there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, let me be the first then to, to call this scenario happening where people call it an attack on something. Yeah. All right. Yes, you did. You did. You did do that. All right. So let me just get to Gail and Eva. I'm going to run out of time pretty soon. Oh, we've got this is good because I actually do think these theme songs should be focus grouped by dogs. So uh, let's hear. Do we have do we have a report from the canine uh, world right now, Gail? Yes, we do. Okay. Actually, I no longer have a dog, so that um, this is, this is just an. Uh, um, um, pay attention to this, just a heads up. Okay. Um, you are neglecting the whole uh, and important part of your audience, which is the pets and even perhaps small children. We had a dog who responded to the All Things Consider uh, theme song because mm. that was when she expected to be fed. Ah. And when um, when the time change occurred, I would you you can picture me flying through the house to turn the radio down <laughs> because this was her you know was her thing. And this, of course, is something that occurs in the morning. And now that it has changed, I can imagine um, gastric distress amongst dogs 
whose gastric juices have not been stimulated by the expected theme song. Well, you know, it's all about the food with them. Everybody says, oh, Fufu loves music. You know, but when you get right down to it, it's totally Pavlovian. They're, they're, they're not music appreciators. You, you could be anything. It could just as easily be Van, Van Halen as long as there was a pork chop on the other end of it, right? It doesn't make any difference to them. That's why you can't go with a dog vote on these things. All right, uh, we're going to quickly take a two more calls, and then we've got uh, some somewhat more serious topics to deal with, I promise, as we go along here. Uh, here's Ava in West Hartford. You have the floor. Oh, but you need to turn down your radio. I'll tell you what. Turn down your radio uh, because it's, it's going to mess with your mind. I'm come right, come right back to you. I'm going to give the floor instead right now to Rose in Bethlehem. Hi, Rose. Hi. How are you? Good. That's good. Well, I want to say is I really like the change. It's not really a change. It's like a revision. Mm-hmm. It's very lively, and as an older person, it, listening to it, just driving here, uh, I'm listening to it. When I was listening to it, I thought, gee, this is really kind of a good wake-up call, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I really like it. It's got a nice beat to it, and um, I, I think it would attract the younger group of people um, that listen in the morning, you know? But uh, as an older person, I really like it, and um and I'm really into music. My father and my brothers were guitar players, and mm-hmm. so the beat is really, really nice. It's a good wake-up call. All right. Great call, Rose. It does sound like some Amazonian tribesmen persons making some dugout canoes so they can go down the river to a rave. That's that. I think that's sort of how it plays for me. All right, we have to take a little break here. We're going to come back. We're going to get a little, little bit more serious. We're going to celebrate the life of somebody who died young, made an incredible impact, though, on the contemporary world of evangelical theology and attitude as practiced. Okay, we're going to get a little bit more serious here, maybe a lot more serious. Although this person that we're about to talk about, my sense of uh, who she uh, was, is that uh, there was an element of playfulness that went along with an awful lot of what she wrote and talked about. Uh, You may not know this name, Rachel Held Evans, often referred to as R-H-E, especially for uh, compactness purposes on social media. Uh, she died at the age of 37 on Saturday in a hospital uh, in Nashville. Uh, this all had to do with a reaction, an infection and a reaction to antibiotics, apparently. But um, uh, she had a big impact on the world uh, of evangelicals, particularly evangelicals who were trying to square their participation in a religion often a a participation that had been, you know, really part of the fabric of their lives. Their parents and grandparents had been evangelicals. They'd gone to Christian summer camps and learned a whole bunch of songs and gotten familiar with a whole bunch of things. And then as they hit a certain point, you know, some of the patriarchy, uh, some of the attitudes about uh, LGBTQ uh, persons, uh, some of the uh, reliance, over-reliance perhaps, uh, or selective reliance on Scripture uh, started to bother them. How do you deal with all that. Uh, well, she was there to help people. She was a best-selling author. Uh, and here to talk more about her and more knowledge, knowledgeably about her is Ruth Graham, staff writer for Slate, who covers primarily religion. Uh, thanks for joining us, Ruth Graham. 
Thank you for having me. So uh, say a little mo- bit more just to kind of help pl- people place uh, Rachel Held Evans uh, in the firmament of, of, of writing about Christianity. Sure. So like you said, she was an author of four books, but she was also well known as a blogger. She'd been blogging for more than a decade um, and also a popular speaker at conferences and churches. So she had a a lot of different platforms. Um, But she wrote about, you know, every issue kind of intersecting in any way with contemporary um, American evangelicalism. So theology, culture, politics, um, every kind of hot button topic. I think in the piece I called her a a forceful and winsome public voice for progressive evangelicalism. So um, her own religious journey started in really conservative evangelicalism. She grew up in Tennessee and went to a small conservative Christian college there. Um, And she wrote over the course of her career kind of about her own spiritual evolution out of that conservative evangelical space. Um, And actually, uh, by 2014, I think she, you know, formally stopped calling herself an evangelical and she belonged to a a mainline Episcopal church, but still just had a a real presence. I really spoke to people still in the evangelical community and also people, like you said, you set it up really nicely, Um, you know, people who had roots in that community, but felt either rejected by it because of who they were, they felt turned off by it, disillusioned in some way, but still, you know, kind of felt connected to that faith in some way. And she was really, you know, a voice for people in those middle spaces, um, you know, very transparent about her own wrestling with faith and doubt, um, but still really, you know, Rachel loved the Bible, loved Jesus, um, and, and she was able to just really be in that middle space and be a voice for the many, many people there with her. Um, she seemed to be, I should say, first of all, that uh, as many people listening to the show know, uh, and we actually did a whole episode on progressive evangelicalism, mm-hmm. and although I haven't been going to church lately, when I do go to church, I go to a church that kind of fits that description. And many of the communicants there are people who are gay or lesbian, who who grew up loving all of the ideas, beliefs, and tropes uh, of, of the evangelical church, but then found that once they understood their own identity, they were being told that their identity wasn't loved or accepted uh, the way other people's were and just were trying to square that. And it's a gigantic problem for people who aren't willing to turn loose of everything they were brought up with. It seemed as though uh, that RHE uh, was also able to do this. I mean, it's a pretty fraught thing, and you can get in some to, into some real fire-breathing arguments about this. She seemed to be able to do it with humor and humility uh, that isn't often one of the condiments that goes go along with this conversation. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's an unusual combination in my experience to find someone like her who was so attuned to injustice and so, um, you know, spoke and wrote with such clarity about what she saw was wrong in the world and in conservative evangelicalism, but was also so relentlessly, you know, cheerful. She was funny. She was warm. Um, It's really been amazing to see over the last few days, the number of people who she sparred publicly with in some form or another, just coming, you know, out to sort of talk about how she was able to do that so respectfully and warmly um, and just in a way that I think is really unusual, you know, particularly at this particular moment in time. Um, She was just respectful and direct and, and always had this sort of sense of, of good humor and, and seeing the humanity in everyone she debated with. Um, and at the same time, you know, 
never shying away from that debate um, and, you know, speaking what she saw as the truth with with real directness. You know, I, I, I can sort of say this as conjecture without knowing it for sure, but uh, Nancy Butler, uh, who was the big, who was my pastor and the biggest spiritual influence on my life, and who also died uh, young uh, of ALS a few years ago, mm-hmm. um, I guarantee you that oh. she'd read everything that this woman uh, had written because they are just peas in a pot. And she she became a, a pastor and went to a divinity school a little bit later uh, in life, not uh, as her first uh, choice uh, of professions, but discovered later. And one thing I think that you're seeing today, uh, Ruth, is people going on Twitter or wherever and talking about pursuing ordination with with this particular writer as a source of of confidence and, and inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. It's incredible the the number of ordained women who have come forward over the last few days crediting Rachel with influencing their journeys to leadership, whether that's by keeping them in the faith, you know, just through her writing and her speaking um, and, you know, making clear that there was space for them within um, Christianity, within American evangelicalism, but also, you know, her making a very forceful case for women's leadership um, or just by directly encouraging them. That's another thing is she just was incredible, you know, the for being such a high profile public figure the amount of people who have stories about her receiving just a little encouraging note from her. Um, you know, she was very active on social media and, you know, just in the comments of her blog and um, just w- was able to touch a lot of people directly. Um, and, you know, another thing that, again, this has really become clear, especially over the last few days in these public testimonies, but she really used her platform to an extraordinary degree to elevate other women, um, especially women of color, also LGBTQ writers. You know, she had this big platform and she really used it just relentlessly to elevate people who aren't usually granted those kind of platforms in Christian spaces. So uh, that's also just been something that's emerged and um, is, is pretty incredible to see. So, Ruth, one of the things that uh, has been a source of tension within the evangelical movement of late is that as a whole, as a mass, uh, it's it's attributed to uh, or it's sort of given the quality of having endorsed the candidacy and presidency of Donald Trump, a man who appears to um, personally embrace very few things that we would associate right. with, with the sort of personal ethics uh, of Christian e- evangelicals. Uh, and there have been a lot of questions uh, from the secular press. Well, how can you guys line up with this guy? He just he's like he's everything that you say people should not be and none of the things that you say that they should. What did Rachel Held Evans uh, have to contribute to this conversation? Sure. I mean, she was very outspoken about just her grief at seeing as you said, you know, the incredible support, you know, when you look at the numbers, white evangelicals supported Donald Trump at really high numbers and that was something that grieved and angered her. Um, And again, I think that's an area where she was able to give voice to um, thousands and thousands of people who felt that same way. And and these might be people who no longer identify as evangelicals, but again, have a complicated relationship within their past or have, you know, still feel connected to the church in some way. Um, And she was able to articulate that with a real kind of, I I would say, righteousness. Um, You know, I saw someone couple of people calling her a prophet um, online this weekend, which is an interesting way to um, 
think about her. So, yeah, she was very outspoken about that. You know, actually, she was uh, called a prophet in a radio interview at one point or maybe a podcast mm-hmm. interview. And she laughed and said, I'm not a prophet. It hasn't cost me nearly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea being if you're really a prophet, uh, it's going to take something out of you in, in a big way. So uh, just lastly, I mean, one of the things I think that progressive evangelicals wind up bringing up is so much of so, sort of evangelical orthodoxy is justified by a doctrine sometimes called sola scriptura. If it's not in the scriptures, then you can't do it. Uh, Or if it's in the scriptures, you must do it. And if it's forbidden in the scriptures, you can't do it. Uh, But everything is sort of based on on what's there in text. And, And it's such an easily exploded issue because what's there, particularly in certain books of the Old Testament, would lead to kind of an unworkable lifestyle if you tried to follow all of these things. So that's why I said at the beginning, you know, scriptures sometimes rather selectively quoted by so-called fundamentalists. And this is something that she really played around with, up to and including, I think, a, a one-year experiment where she really tried to live by all those rules. Yes. she Her second book, I think it was um, A Year of Biblical Womanhood. And she you know, went through the Bible and cataloged all the rules, Old and New Testament, um, for how women were supposed to behave. So Proverbs 31 is a famous um, chapter about, you know, what a a good Christian woman is and all these Levitical rules. And um, she just went through the whole Bible and, um, you know, sort of took them on one by one. So I think for a a month, she would camp out in her yard when she had her period, you know, to sort of separate herself according to Levitical rules. And, you know, it was a very, um, you know, she had a serious point with it, with it, which is about biblical literalism, as you said. Um, but she also, you know, had a lot of fun with it. Um, and I think to me that so captures a big part of who she was and her work, which is, you know, making a serious, deep theological point, but also having a lot of fun with it and doing it with such um, good humor. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was one of her projects. And she also, that was something you know, the idea of biblical literalism, she wrote about a lot. Um, There's a post of hers I just was rereading this weekend where she goes through and finds um, all of these, you know, old quotes from Christian leaders about how the Bible says, uh, you know, using the Bible to prove things like, uh, you know, opposition to interracial relationships. And, you know, she was very pointed about, um, you know, articulating the ways that the Bible has been used to you know, supposedly sort of prove all of these now, you know, things that now contemporary evangelicalism totally rejects. So just the the fact that the Bible can be used to almost any end, she was, you know, ha- had a lot to say about that. So Ruth Graham, we're in the days of mourning the, uh, the, la- the oh. death of uh, Rachel Held Evans, but probably uh, conversations like this one and what you wrote in Slate Magazine may help people uh, discover uh, her work if they haven't already read it. I hope so. Yeah, that would be great. So we're going to end this segment uh, with Saturday, uh, a poem uh, written by Rachel Held Evans. You're going to hear her voice reading it over music by the liturgists question gets answered too quickly, or if the silence goes on too long, please know you're not alone. There are other people singing words to hymns they're not sure they believe today, other people digging out dresses from the backs of their closets today, other people ruining Easter brunch today, other people just showing up today. And sometimes, just showing up, burial spices in hand, is all it takes to witness a miracle.
Scott Breedy, the scheduled producer of this episode, is under the weather, so it's a bird, it's a plane. Super Betsy Kaplan stepped up this morning and produced it with help from me, Kion Wolf. You know, that whole it's a bird, it's a plane thing makes me realize how many people had uncorrected vision problems when Superman first appeared. The part of Bill Curry was played by B.J. Lederman. On tomorrow's show, our wild and crazy tribute to Elvis. And now... Back to Colin. Yeah, I want to second that emotion about Betsy Kaplan. Uh, Scott was uh, going to be doing the show today, and this morning we got the email that he's uh, under the weather and can't do it. Uh, and Betsy jumped in, and we really have uh, had a lot of fun and gotten to some pretty serious stuff here on the show today. We're going to get uh, even more serious, if that's possible. Uh, right now, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about uh, something you may have seen in this morning's news. Uh, because of a U.N. report, uh, we now know that for the, for, for the first time that um, one, over one million species of plants and animals are facing extinction, which is directly linked uh, to human activity. So uh, joining us to talk about this uh, is Walter Yetz, a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology uh, and of forestry and environmental studies at Yale. He also runs the Yetz Lab. He is the co-author of a new Yale-led study showing the percentage of threatened amphibian species is higher than previously believed. So kind of a subset of this overall uh, UN intergovernmental science and policy uh, platform report uh, that came out today. Um, uh, and it's been his, uh, their study has been published in Current Biology. So, um, you know, it has been said in the past that uh, of the many species that have existed on Earth, uh, and estimates of that could be somewhere around 50 billion species. More than 99% of those have been made extinct at some point. They've disappeared. Uh, so sometimes people joke that all of life today, when taken in that context, amounts to not much more than a rounding error. But you, we can be cavalier in that way. But I think we have to be very serious right now. We are being told uh, about a rate of extinction that I think exceeds uh, anything we've seen before. Uh, but Walter Yetz, tell it. Tell us more about this. Uh, you you are aware of the UN report. You're also obviously in possession of your own research. If you wanted to convey to a casual listener the seriousness of this situation, how would you do that? Hi there. Thank Hi. you. It's it's a pleasure to be on the on the program sure. and uh, happy to 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 speak about this topic. Um, and uh, it's been interesting actually to your question to be part of that very assessment that was, was published today and, and the media coverage was about today as well as this particular study. And what we really are concerned about as, as, author of that, as authors of that assessment as well as this paper is the multiple threats that biodiversity is facing today, uh, the many different impacts species experience, um, and how that is leading has already led and, and is going to continue to lead to uh, species extinctions and, and on an increasing scale. And these extinctions, uh, as you made the point about uh, species will always go extinct, it's correct, species are going extinct on an ongoing basis, but these extinctions that we're encountering now are uh, orders of magnitude more than we would have expected um, just from, from natural processes. So species are going extinct, they are going extinct uh, because of us humans, of our activities, uh, and I can, I can say more about that in a moment, um, but importantly, they're going to extinct at a much, much greater rate uh, than would otherwise be expected. And we humans will be less off because it. Uh, we, there are a lot of benefits we're uh, getting from nature, 
and uh, we're losing these benefits one by one, and in many cases, unfortunately, without even exactly knowing what those may be in, in the future. So it's a very dramatic situation right now. Right. Just to stay with the amphibians for a second, I mean, give people a sense numerically uh, of what you're seeing compared to what a normal rate of extinction would be. So we've had uh, about uh, 2% or so of, of, spe- of amphibian species that have gone extinct since about the medieval times. Um, and they're gone for forever. So about 2% of the amphibian species that were around in the 1500s are, are not with us anymore. And that may not seem like very much, but uh, on a usual background rate, we would have expected about perhaps uh, uh, 0.1% or, or less of species to, to disappear. So we're talking about dozens and dozens of, of, of species um, that uh, are, are, are in some cases species that have uh, performed known services and functions to in ecosystems and in other cases have not. Uh, some cases, species we don't even have a color photo of. We don't even know exactly what they look like. There may be a, a specimen or a description somewhere. Um, so uh, uh, we've already lost a lot. And um, amphibians, by the way, are, are the worst off group among the ones that have been assessed among the among the animal groups that have been assessed so far for their uh, extinction risk. And what's what's so concerning is that we know already many more species are uh, committed to extinction. We're identifying some of those newly in our study, and some of those are have already been identified before. About 30 um, percent of all amphibian species, there are about six and a half thousand uh, described to date with, with hundreds still being described uh, uh, every year almost. Uh, about 30% of those species are considered threatened uh, at the moment. And uh, about another 25% actually, it hasn't been known what their threat status may be. And that's what our, st- what our study addressed. All right. So yeah, we lost 2% uh, over the span of four or 500 years. Suddenly, we've got 25 to 30% uh, facing possible extinction in a much, much, much shorter window, as you say, orders of magnitude uh, bigger. So uh, how much of this is attributable to human activity? Well, uh, either directly or indirectly, pretty much, pretty much all of it. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, the usual background rate would be would be in the in the uh, well below one uh, percent. Um, now, what's uh, uh, hitting amphibians is is a whole range of of uh, uh, issues, and and they're really getting it from all sides. That's why uh, they are among the the worst impacted animal groups so far. So there is first of all. Uh, a loss of habitat that we're seeing worldwide. Deforestation would be the obvious one, but we're also losing wetlands worldwide. Amphibians obviously are restricted uh, usually to, to wetter areas. Uh, other primary habitats are, are getting lost worldwide, and particularly so in the tropics, uh, where there are specific hotspots uh, or centers of, of diversity that uh, uh, have in some cases seen some protection, but in other cases, are sort of ground zero for all sorts of uh, uh, new developments, uh, be it for infrastructure or agriculture or or urban expansion. So we're seeing all of that uh, impacting amphibians. Number two is um, diseases, actually. So amphibians are, uh, because of their their, their quite 
uh, delicate physiology, if you will. They have a very uh, uh, sort of um, semi-permeable skin, as we all do, but they're particularly uh, easily affected uh, by, uh, uh, by pathogens. There's a certain fungal pathogen that's been taking out uh, species after species and is threatening uh, many, many more. And, and that is being spread further uh, by human activities and particularly also invasions, which in some cases may impact amphibians directly. So newly introduced species, or as we know that, that lighthouse keeper's cat, not so much uh, uh, relevant for amphibians because there are not that many on islands, but other uh, species such as rats uh, uh, and cats in other places uh, have been, uh, or even introduced toads of certain types have been, have been knocking out amphibians. And finally, climate change, uh, amphibians require usually high humidity, very particular microclimates, and of all species um, assessed so far, they're among the worst in terms of uh, e existing and then projected risk of climate change-driven extinctions. I mean, one of the things that the UN report, I think, makes clear is that um, these are not just things that are happening to plants and animals and not to human beings, that ultimately the, the, the big bill that comes due at the end of all this is one that will hit human beings uh, very hard. I mean, if you eliminate mangrove swamps and coral reefs, you're going to have a lot more flooding, that across the board, these extinctions that we're looking at, these one million extinctions, will directly, I mean, they've been directly or indirectly caused by human beings. They're also going to directly or indirectly affect human beings at some point, I assume. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, uh, it's, the connection is obvious and easy to make for, for something like mangroves, but uh, it's actually pretty, pretty evident in, in many other cases. And it's both uh, evident in terms of sort of the direct uh, as well as the, uh, the, the, the more indirect uh, effects that, that these extinctions uh, will have. So think about amphibians representing uh, wetlands, for example, and, and, and uh, places where uh, we uh, are uh, looking at, at services performed by these ecosystems, uh, such as, as, as water provisioning, water cleaning, uh, as well as uh, erosion uh, prevention. So these are, in many cases, uh, places that are getting impacted that are uh, of great direct uh, uh, relevance for humans. And the amphibians going extinct alongside are, are just sort of another symptom. But it's also the amphibians themselves or species, individual species, that convey uh, important functions and services um, to the ecosystems uh, and uh, via that indirectly, uh, in some cases even directly to us humans. So uh, sometimes these sorts of connections are easier to make for a, a, a pretty looking fluffy mammal uh, that we can all connect with as, as something that may have uh, of cultural benefits to us that we consider as aesthetically beneficial. Um, there are many plants in the tropics that, that have already been shown to, to harbor important be of important medicinal value. Um, and you may think a frog, well, uh, may not offer that direct benefit, but uh, there are uh, uh, a whole range of amazingly beautiful uh, and uh, frog species that actually have local uh, value in indigenous communities and cultures um, that uh, sometimes uh, have already been recognized directly for the uh, uh, pest control functions that they, they convey. So amphibians obviously feed on, feed on insects. And in many cases, it's just not even known yet how critical a given species or a set of species may be to a, to a local ecosystem. So looking at 
originally estimated about 30% and now through our study actually shown well over 40%, so 42 to 45% of amphibian species globally uh, committed to extinction uh, unless we are doing something about it. Uh, is a really, uh, really uh, a troubling picture indeed. All right. We're going to have to stop it there. We've been talking to Walter Yetz, uh, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Yale. Uh, we promise to come back to this, too. Uh, we need to have a lot more conversations about what we do to stop this. I wanted to end, though, with this song, which I heard last night. It's a, a song by Mark Arelli, who performed last night at Infinity Hall as part of Jim Chapdelaine's uh, big uh, megastar concert for uh, for various good causes. It's called By Degrees, and he wrote it about gun violence, but it's about how things happen by degrees and we, we tolerate them, we don't notice them. It's a great metaphor and a great way of describing what we just talked about, about what's happening to our environment, our climate, uh, and the extinction of these species. So you'll hear some various uh, famous voices, because I'm going to shut up right now. We can learn to live into my heart each day a little more this darkness growing so familiar i can't recall what came before my children's faces filled with questions looking up expectantly and i don't know what to tell them no i can't bring myself to tell them you can learn to live with anything when it happens by 